Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 199. Go on! <laughs> I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, welcome to a fantastic show 199, got one off the show 200, and when we get back, because Starship Sofa is going on a little vacation, when we get back, it is only one week until the Hugo Awards as well, and as you know, Starship Sofa is up for Best Fanzine. Mm, there you go, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show, we have a little special Everything by Morgan Saletta. A little travelogue, and he meets someone you might know. Then we have the main fiction, which is by Hanu Rajanim. It is Elegy for a Young Elk. Then we have the July Science News by Mr. J.J. Campanella. And actually, at this second, and I'm recording this on the Thursday, which is a day late anyways, I've got the wrong science news off Jim, so hopefully I can get that all sorted out before we actually hit the road and get it on there. As you know as well, it's the end of the month, so we have the fantastic cover art. It is by Chris Hudson. Just look at that. Fantastic. Chris, thank you so much. So, yes, just before we get into the day show, we are going to be off the air. And it's now, I'm not too sure how long. You know what I mean? I don't know. We'll, we'll come back. I'm away for two weeks. So we are away for two weeks. So, do we kind of miss for the, th- the three weeks on air or not? I'm not too sure. We'll just have to wait and see. We might have to get back and, you know, I miss the day's recording and then that's it. You know, it's gone and I'll just have to kind of wait till the following week. But we'll just wait and see. I'm not too sure. It could be either two weeks or three weeks. So, I hope you can bear with us. If it is three weeks, then that is. The Hugos have, have gone and passed and will either have been in there and won it or not. But who can tell? 
Last chance to vote is the 31st of July, I think, if you're you know eligible to vote for the Hugo War. So please, pop over there and do your stuff. And think about, think about the little girl, Starship Sofa. <laughs> Anyway, let's get into the dear show. First up is Morgan Saletta with his everything. Morgan. Hello and welcome to another edition of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections on Science, Science Fiction, and Philosophy. I'm Morgan Saletta. Now, some of you may have noticed that uh, this installment is rather late, and it's going to be in a rather special format as well. I recently turned home to my hometown of San Francisco in the United States, and then uh, went on to Chicago uh, for a conference on the history of astronomy where I presented some of the research on the uh, megalithic sites near Arles in France that uh, I research. Uh, and I also met uh, Larry Santoro. So this installment is going to be presented as a kind of travelogue, and you will have to excuse the fact that it is recorded on this, my portable sound recorder, and it's recorded outside as I go. So if at times the sound quality is not perfect, please excuse me. And with the next installment, I will return to the normal format. And I hope you enjoy this travelogue. Hello out there. Here I am in my native San Francisco. It's a beautiful day, blue sky, and not a sign of the famous summer fog that caused Mark Twain famously to comment that the coldest winter he'd ever seen was a summer in San Francisco. True words, but I can't tell you how many times I've heard them. I'm standing at Land's End. It's a strip of parkland on the city's westernmost edge where crumbling cliffs covered in wind-sculptured cypress meet the pounding waves of the Pacific Ocean. From where I'm standing, there is not a sign that there is even a city here, except that there in the distance is the Golden Gate Bridge vaulting gracefully across the bay's entrance to the windswept hills of the Marin headlands. It's a postcard-perfect view, and this is one of my favorite places in the city, a place where you can walk for 45 minutes along tree-lined paths with stunning ocean views and Forget the stresses of city life. It's a place I've taken many friends and visitors to in the past, and one I come to every time I visit my home, my hometown here in San Francisco. But this is life, the universe, and everything. So I'm here to talk about science fiction and things, right? Not send you an audio postcard of the Golden Gate Bridge. Most of you out there will have a pretty good idea of what San Francisco looks like. Who knows how many movies have been filmed here? And, of course... It also has its own literary history, from Jack London to the Beatnik and Armistead Mopan's Tales of the City. But it's also a city with a rich history in science fiction, both as a setting, both as a setting and a location for books and films, but also as a place, along with the Bay Area in general, that has been home at one time or another to some of science fiction's masters, from Philip K. Dick to Jack Vance and Ursula Le Guin. Indeed, Frank Herbert's primary career was working for the San Francisco Chronicle, although his home was primarily in the Pacific Northwest. He also spent quite a bit of time here. Ursula Le Guin, who was actually in the same Berkeley High graduating class as Philip K. Dick, grew up here across the bay in Berkeley, and Robert Heinlein lived about an hour south of here near Santa Cruz. 
but far more numerous than the science fiction authors who have called San Francisco home at one time or another, are the, are the science fiction works set in or with settings in San Francisco. Probably the first is Jules Verne's Around the World in 80 Days, in which San Francisco features as one of Phineas Fogg's stopovers. Jack London, who also lived in the area, set his apocalyptic novel, The Scarlet Plague, here. And Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was set almost entirely in San Francisco, though the movie, Blade Runner, was switched to Los Angeles. William Gibson set significant parts of his bridge trilogy here, particularly on and around the Bay Bridge, which he transforms in the works into a chaotic sort of squatter settlement and semi-autonomous zone. Not far from here, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, is the Marin County Civic Center, designed by renowned architect Frank Lloyd Wright, and which science fiction fans may recognize as the space center in the movie Gattaca. Interestingly, it also served as a location for George Lucas's THX 1138, his first feature film, and indeed Lucas Ranch is also in Marin County. The list could go on and on, but I've brought you here to this beautiful spot with its view of rugged cliffs, forested parks, and the graceful towers of the Golden Gate Bridge for a special reason, because here, if you close your eyes, you can see them, the graceful forms of Federation starships as they come and go from Starfleet headquarters. There, in another reality, on the far side of the Golden Gate Bridge. Well, that's about it for now. I'm off to Chicago and Notre Dame University tomorrow. I'll be attending a conference there. But I'll be back with you as I take a tour of the Adler Planetarium in Chicago and meet up with someone you know and love. Starship Sofa's own, Larry Santoro. I can't wait. So I'm standing outside of the Adler Planetarium, apparently the oldest planetarium outside of Europe, the first built outside of Europe in 1931. Um, it's famous for its collection of astronomic instruments, telescopes, orillaries, which are sort of clocks with moving planets and tell time and months, um, astrolabes, scientific manuscripts, and uh, as well as the planetarium itself. And out here we have a, an absolutely stunning view of the Chicago skyline. Chicago is one of the um, it's probably the first city of the future after the great Chicago fire of I can't remember when, and they were rebuilding the city. Um, this was where the first skyscrapers were built, or modern skyscrapers with elevators. Now, surprisingly enough, the uh, elevators of Chicago uh, tie in with the history of astronomy because uh, William Hale, who uh, patented the hydraulic elevator after the Chicago fire, uh, and was a major uh, tycoon and builder, industrialist of the time, uh, was the father of George Hale, uh, an astronomer and astrophysicist who was responsible for building uh, some of the world's largest telescopes of the time. Uh, George uh, convinced Charles Yerkes to build the Yerkes Observatory uh, near here, near Chicago, uh, which was then uh, the largest telescope at the time and was later responsible with funding from his father for building the 
observatory, the telescopes at Mount Wilson, and then again the one at the famous uh, Palomar Observatory, which was for long the largest telescope in the world. So there you have it. In the plaza out front, there is a statue of Copernicus, whose model of the solar system revolutionized our conception of the place of the Earth in the universe. As I've said before, the Copernican revolution changed forever our conception of the place of the Earth in the solar system and the universe and the place of, of man was a sort of a fall from grace with the earth no longer being the center of the universe and the apple of God's eye, a revolution which was continued with Darwin where man was no longer the center of biological creation or the pinnacle of biological creation but rather a leaf on a branching bush or tree of life with an evolutionary history and an evolutionary future, hopefully. Okay, let's uh, let's go inside. I'm I'm really eager to get in there. Apparently, they've got an amazing collection of old telescopes, and they've got a real Gemini capsule. I can't wait to see it. It's pretty amazing here. I'm standing in front of the Gemini 12 capsule, and I'm just it's in a big glass case, and I'm just walking around to see its ablation shield, which actually shows uh, the scarring and the pattern. Uh, worn into it uh, by uh, atmospheric friction as it re-entered. Um, clearly at an angle you can see where um, the center uh, point and then the radio sort of lines going out from that um, showing the friction of the atmosphere on the shield. It's pretty cool. The Project Gemini, uh, which went from 1963 to 1966, was the second uh, U.S. manned space program announced in 1962. And uh, there were 12 flights, including two unmanned uh, flight tests. So one of, the, uh, one of Gemini's accomplishments, uh, or the main accomplishments of the Gemini uh, mission, was uh, to show that uh, astronauts could stay in space long enough to land on the moon and come back. Um, to maneuver capsules and satellites for rendezvous um, that astronauts could make controlled re-entries into Earth's atmosphere and that the astronauts could work for extended time in space. Uh, and actually the docking unit that Gemini docked with was uh, the Agena rocket. Um, it was used as a rendezvous and docking target and as a booster to uh, propel Gemini to um, the high altitude orbit that it reached. Okay, so as I mentioned, um, I'm here for a couple of reasons. Um, I'm here for a History of Astronomy conference um, where I'm going to present my research on the megalithic sites. That's um, prehistoric sites about 5,000 years old um, in the south of France, so built you know, just a little bit before the first pyramids. And these sites are they're these um, really long uh, tunnels or passageways which are dug directly into bedrock and roofed over with um, large rock slabs or megaliths. You access them through a sort of a ramp down into the ground, and then there's a and there's a sort of a portal doorway um, that's open. Um, and these sites are a little bit like uh, well, they're oriented towards the equinox sunset. Um, and when the sun sets on and around the equinox, you get a shaft of light that uh, penetrates um, the portal. This, there's five sites in the group. 
One of them's in ruins. Three of them are sort of smaller sites, but although they're quite large, they are about 12 to 15 yards in length. Um, they're about, uh, they're taller. When you're inside, they're very large, sort of trapezoidal, uh, very smooth-walled. Uh, chambers, so when the shaft of sunlight uh, penetrates and hits the back wall, it illuminates the entire chamber with orange light. Um, the extremely large site, there's an extremely large site up on a small uh, sort of rock outcropping that you know is is uh, much much larger. Um, but I've as yet to be up there during the equinox. Um, it's very hard to access and it's on private property, so hopefully I'll be doing that uh, next year. But that's the research I'm presenting. But second reason that I'm here at the Adler is I'm about to go and meet Larry Santoro and his wife, Ticelia. I uh, read on the forums that uh, Larry lives here in Chicago, so I sent him a message and he emailed me back and we arranged uh, to meet for lunch. And... Um, I may have some tidbits from that chat for you. Okay, I've just got back from Chicago. I'm back here at the Notre Dame campus. Um, it's really amazing. There are actually fireflies flying around. I've never seen fireflies or lightning bugs, as they call them, in parts of the country. An absolutely magical sight. But, yeah, I, as, I, as I mentioned, I met up with um, Larry Santoro and his lovely wife, Tacelia, and we had a really nice lunch. Unfortunately, the uh, restaurant of the Adler, where we were, was extremely noisy. And although I recorded, I've just had a quick listen, and the sound quality is just really not good enough. It was just really, really loud, and you can barely understand uh, what we're saying. But it was a lovely time. He told me uh, stories of his actually going out to the Adler. Apparently, it's one of his favorite places. He used to go there with a group of amateur uh, astronomers. He was there with his telescope watching the comet Shoemaker-Levy crash into Jupiter. That, well, that was an incredible event. Uh, I'm really jealous that uh, he got to see it that way. But uh, there is, uh, I'm going to play a, a clip here where he did tell a story about going up to the uh, Yerkes uh, Observatory, which was run by the uh, University of Chicago. It sounds like a, a, a very lovely place. Uh, we drove up one evening taking the telescope and we actually got into the smaller observatories to, to we actually got used to one of the 24 inch refractors the reflectors when it was when we were there but we also got into the dome the, ma the main dome with the 40 inch and how did, I mean because that was the biggest for a really long time I, I think that remember was, when I was a kid seeing that pictures of Yerkes observatory astronomy books when I, I was just sitting there staring at them. I, I love Palomar, of course, because mm -hmm. that was the biggest oh. then. But Yerke somehow was a real telescope. But it was so neat to be able to clamor all over that thing. Cause, and then, and I guess I never really thought about it, to go underneath it, where the floor raises and lowers. When the telescope is pointed this way, you can have the floor at that level. And when the telescope goes this way, they have to raise the the, the floor, so the observer can be up near the eyepiece, so he's not up on a giant thing. <laughs> yeah. And you go underneath it, and there's this big brick pier on which the telescope is located, and the floor, this round floor overhead, goes up and down. It's huge, of course. I was like, just so overwhelmed by that. And then Cecilia and I got to go in again. We. <laughs> By accident. Yes, we, you went up and pounded on the door. And somebody well, answered. You know, it wasn't that we, we didn't so much pound on the door. We were up on the grounds, and I was saying, it's a shame we can't get in. And this guy came but along, we and, 
I, I said, are you by any chance so-and-so? Uh, I have a science fiction writer friend who lives up near there, and she has friends there, and and it was, in fact, this guy, and he let us in. And yeah, so we got it's exciting. Play around with it also. But it's got a lot of scopes up there, but the uh, they've, uh, that's mostly been deactivated now. Light pollution, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. And now, you know, everything is done by robots and, you yeah. know, and they have, they have uh, the, U of, the University of Chicago has a, uh, has a South Pole observatory. Yeah. They're doing a lot of their work. Yeah. In fact, when we were there, that, I don't know if it was the time you and I were there, if it was when I was up there earlier, we were talking to one of the guys that was there doing something in the basement in one of the labs. Uh, setting up some equipment that was going to the South Pole for their... Yeah. It's so beautiful. I, Lake Geneva is just a gorgeous... I wanted to get up there. I mean, that was, you know, when I thought, oh, you know, if I'd had more time, I could make it up there and see... It and, is you beautiful. Know, it's, yeah. And it's, it's a beautiful community. It's nest, this little lake. It's a beautiful yeah, lake. Uh, and then you, you can take a boat ride in this old cutter boat kind of thing. Big, it's steam, old steamboat that uh, used to take mail around to all the rich people that lived along the shore. The shore is just lined with these mansions that are from the turn of the century, the old century. And then you can see the dome of the observatory as you come around the lake. It's, it's a long lake. It's a pretty big size, big size lake. So once again, that was Larry Santoro, someone you all here at Starship Sofa know and love. It was really lovely meeting him, and I'll leave you with this uh, recording, which we made together. Hi, I'm Larry Santoro, author of Just North of Nowhere, and soon to be author of Drink for the Thirst to Come, and a narrator here on the Star Sofa. I'm Morgan Saletta, and I contribute the monthly fact article, Life, the Universe, and Everything, here on the Starship Sofa. And we're here to remind you that it's not just a starship. And it's not just a sofa. It's, it's a, a community. community. Until next time, this is Morgan Saletta, signing out. How cool is that? I've never even actually listened to that. I just got came and I forgot all about it. And Morgan, that was fantastic. Thank you. And Larry, what can I say? Thank you so much. Next up is a main fiction, and it's by honestly one of these kind of one of these one of the hot new writers, Hanu Rajani, and it's Elegy for a Young Elk. And I remember it was Matthew Sanborn Smith mentioned in Fiction Crawler this story as well. And like I say, just get lost in it. It is fantastic. It is narrated by Anthony Naples. Anthony, thank you so much for this. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present Elegy for a Young Elk by Hanu Rayaniemi. The night after Kasonin shot the young elk, he tried to write a poem by the campfire. It was late April, and there was still snow on the ground. He had already taken to sitting outside in the evening, on a log by the fire, in the small clearing where his cabin stood. Otso was more comfortable outside, and he preferred the bear's company to being alone. It snored loudly atop its pile of fir branches. A wet smell that had traces of elk shit drifted from its drying fur. He dug a soft cover notebook and a pencil stub from his pocket 
he leafed through it. Most of the pages were empty. Words had become slippery, harder to catch than elk, although not this one, careless and young. An old elk would never have let a man and a bear so close. He scattered words on the first empty page, gripping the pencil hard. Antlers. Sapphire antlers. No good. Frozen flames. Tree roots. Forked destinies. There had to be words that captured the moment when the crossbow kicked against his shoulder, the meaty sound of the arrow's impact, but it was like trying to catch snowflakes in his palm. He could barely glimpse the crystal structure, and then they melted. He closed the notebook and almost threw it into the fire, but thought better of it and put it back into his pocket. No point in wasting good paper. Besides, his last toilet roll in the outhouse would run out soon. Kosonin is thinking about words again, Otso growled. Kosonin should drink more booze. Don't need words, then. Just sleep. Kosonin looked at the bear. You think you're smart, huh? He tapped his crossbow. Maybe it's you who should be shooting elk. Oh, so good at smelling. Kosonin at shooting. Both good at drinking. Otso yawned luxuriously, revealing rows of yellow teeth. Then it rolled to its side and let out a satisfied, heavy sigh. Otso will have more booze soon. Maybe the bear was right. Maybe a drink was all he needed. No point in being a poet. They had already written all the poems of the world up there in the sky. They probably had poetry gardens or places where you could become words. But that was not the point. The words needed to come from him. A dirty, bearded man in the woods whose toilet was a hole in the ground. Bright words from dark matter. That's what poetry was about. When it worked. There were things to do. The squirrels had almost picked the lock the previous night, bloody things. The cellar door needed reinforcing. But that could wait until tomorrow. He was about to open a vodka bottle from Otso's secret stash in the snow when Maria came down from the sky as rain. The rain was sudden and cold, like a bucket of water poured over your head in the sauna. But the droplets did not touch the ground. They floated around Kosonin. As he watched, they changed shape, joined together, and made a woman, spindle-thin bones, mist flesh and muscle. She looked like a glass sculpture. The small breasts were perfect hemispheres, her sex an equilateral silver triangle. But the face was familiar, small nose, high cheekbones, a sharp-tongued mouth, Maria. Otso was up in an instant, by Kasonin's side. Bad smell, God smell, it growled. Otso bites. The rain woman looked at it curiously. Otso, 
Kasonin said sternly. He gripped the fur in the bear's rough neck tightly, feeling its huge muscles tense. Otso is Kasonin's friend. Listen to Kasonin. No time for biting. Time for sleeping. Kasonin will speak to God. Then he set the vodka bottle in the snow right under its nose. Otso sniffed the bottle and scraped the half-melted snow with its forepaw. Otso goes, it finally said. Kasonin shouts if the god bites. Then Otso comes. It picked up the bottle in its mouth deftly and loped into the woods with a bear's loose, shuffling gait. Hi, the rain woman said. Hello, Kasonin said carefully. He wondered if she was real. The plague gods were crafty. One of them could have taken Maria's image from his mind. He looked at the unstrung crossbow and tried to judge the odds. A diamond goddess versus an out-of-shape woodland poet. Not good. Your dog does not like me very much, the Maria thing said. She sat down on Kasonin's log and swung its shimmering legs in the air back and forth, just like Maria always did in the sauna. It had to be her, Kasonin decided, feeling something jagged in his throat. He coughed. <clears throat> Bear, not a dog. A dog would have barked. Otso just bites. Nothing personal. That's just its nature. Paranoid and grumpy. Sounds like someone I used to know. I'm not paranoid. Kasonin hunched down and tried to get the fire going again. You learn to be careful in the woods. Maria looked around. I thought we gave you stairs, more equipment. It looks a little primitive here. Yeah, we had plenty of gadgets, Kasonin said, but they weren't plague-proof. I had a smart gun before I had this. He tapped his crossbow, but it got infected. I killed it with a big rock and threw it into the swamp. I've got my skis and some tools, and these, Kasonin tapped his temple, has been enough so far, so cheers. He piled up some kindling under a triangle of small logs, and in a moment the flames sprung up again. Three years had been enough to learn about woodcraft, at least. Maria's skin looked almost human in the soft light of the fire, and he sat back on Otso's fir branches, watching her. For a moment, neither of them spoke. So, how are you these days? he asked. Keeping busy? Maria smiled. Your wife grew up. She's a big girl now. You don't want to know how big. So... You are not her, then? Who am I talking to? I am her, and I am not her. I am a partial, but a faithful one. A translation. You wouldn't understand. Kasonin put some snow in the coffee pot to melt. All right, so 
I'm a caveman. Fair enough. But I understand you are here because you want something. So let's get down to business. Perkla, he swore. Maria took a deep breath. We lost something, something important, something new. The spark, we called it. It fell into the city. I thought you lot kept copies of everything. Quantum information. That was a part of the new bit. You can't copy it. Tough shit. A wrinkle appeared between Maria's eyebrows. Kasonin remembered it from a thousand fights they had had and swallowed. If that's the tone you want to take, fine, she said. I thought you'd be glad to see me. I didn't have to come. They could have sent Mickey Mouse, but I wanted to see you. The big Maria wanted to see you. So, you've decided to live your life like this, as the tragic figure haunting the woods. That's fine, but you could at least listen. You owe me that much. Kasonin said nothing. I see, Maria said. You still blame me for Essa. She was right. It had been her who got the first Santa Claus machine. The boy needs the best we can offer, she said. The world is changing. Can't have him being left behind. Let's make him into a little god, like the neighbor's kid. I guess I shouldn't be blaming you, Kasonin said. You're just, uh, partial. You weren't there. I was there, Maria said quietly. I remember better than you now. I also forget better and forgive. You never could. You just wrote poems. The rest of us moved on and saved the world. Great job, Kasonin said. He poked the fire with a stick, and a cloud of sparks flew up into the air with the smoke. Maria got up. That's it, she said. I'm leaving. See you in a hundred years. The air grew cold. A halo appeared around her, shimmering in the firelight. Kasonin closed his eyes and squeezed his jaw shut tight. He waited for ten seconds. Then he opened his eyes. Maria was still there, staring at him, helpless. He could not help smiling. She could never leave without having the last word. I'm sorry, Kasonin said. It's been a long time. I've been living in the woods with a bear. Doesn't improve one's temper much. I didn't really notice any difference. All right, Kasonin said. He tapped the fir branches next to him. Sit down. Let's start over. I'll make some coffee. Maria sat down, Bear's shoulder touching his. She felt strangely warm, warmer than the fire almost. The firewall won't let us into the city, she said. We don't have anyone human enough, not anymore. There was some talk about making one, but the argument would last a century, she sighed. We like to argue in the sky. Kasonin grinned. I bet you fit right in. He checked for the wrinkle before continuing. So, you need an errand boy. 
We need help. Kasonin looked at the fire. The flames were dying now, licking at the blackened wood. There were always new colors in the embers, or maybe he just always forgot. He touched Maria's hand. It felt like a soap bubble, barely solid, but she did not pull it away. All right, he said, but just so you know, it's not just for old time's sake. Anything we can give you? I'm cheap, Kasonin said. I just want words. The sun sparkled on the Kanto Hanki, snow with a frozen surface strong enough to carry a man on skis and a bear. Kasonin breathed hard. Even going downhill, keeping pace with Otso, was not easy. But in weather like this, there was something glorious about skiing, sliding over the blue shadows of trees almost without friction, the snow hissing underneath. Ah, oh, I've sat still too long, he thought. Should have gone somewhere, just to go, not because someone asks. In the afternoon, when the sun was already going down, they reached the railroad. A bare gash through the forest, two metal tracks on a bed of gravel. Kasonin removed his skis and stuck them in the snow. I'm sorry you can't come along, he told Otso, but the city won't let you in. Otso, not a city bear, the bear said. Otso waits for Kasonin. Kasonin gets sky bug, comes back, then we drink booze. He scratched the rough fur of its neck clumsily. The bear poked Kasonin in the stomach with its nose, so hard that he almost fell. Then it snorted, turned around, and shuffled into the woods. Kasonin watched until it vanished among the snow-covered trees. It took three painful attempts of sticking his fingers down his throat to get the nano-seed Maria had given him to come out. The gagging left a bitter taste in his mouth. Swallowing it had been the only way to protect the delicate thing from the plague. He wiped it in the snow, a transparent bauble, the size of a walnut, slippery and warm. It reminded him of the toys you could get from vending machines in supermarkets when he was a child. Plastic spheres, with something secret inside. He placed it on the rails carefully, wiped the remains of the vomit from his lips, and rinsed his mouth with water. Then he looked at it. Maria knew he would never read an instruction manual, so she had not given him one. Make me a train, he said. Nothing happened. Maybe it can read my mind, he thought and imagined a train, an old steam train, puffing along, still nothing, just a reflection from the darkening sky on the seed's clear surface. She always had to be subtle. Maria could never give a present 
without thinking about its meaning for days. Standing still, let the spring winter chill through his woof pelt coat, and he hopped up and down, rubbing his hands together. With the motion came an idea. He frowned, staring at the seed, and took the notebook from his pocket. Maybe it was time to try out Maria's other gift, or advance payment, however you want to look at it. He had barely written the first lines when the words leaped in his mind like animals, woken from slumber. He closed the book, cleared his throat, and spoke. These rails were worn thin by wheels that wrote down the name of each passenger in steel and miles, he said. It's a good thing the years ate our flesh too, made us thin and light, so the rails are strong enough to carry us still to the city in our train of glass and words. Doggerel, he thought, but it didn't matter. The joy of words filled his veins like vodka. Too bad it didn't work. The seed blurred. It exploded into a white-hot sphere. The waste heat washed across Kosonin's face. Glowing tentacles squirmed past him, sucking carbon and metal from the rails and trees. They danced like a welder's electric arcs, sketching lines and surfaces in the air. And suddenly... The train was there. It was transparent, with paper-thin walls and delicate wheels, as if it had been blown from glass. Sketch of a cartoon steam engine with a single carriage, with spiderweb-like chairs inside, just the way he had imagined it. He climbed in, expecting the delicate structure to sway under his weight, but it felt rock-solid. The nano-seed lay on the floor innocently, as if nothing had happened. He picked it up carefully, took it outside, buried it in the snow, leaving his skis and sticks as markers. Then he picked up his backpack, boarded the train again, and sat down in one of the gossamer seats. Unbidden, the train lurched into motion smoothly. To Kasonin, it sounded like the rails beneath were whispering, but he could not hear the words. He watched the darkening forest glide past. The day's journey weighed heavily down on his limbs. The memory of the snow beneath his skis melted together, with the train's movement, and soon Kasonin was asleep. When he woke up, it was dark. The amber light of the firewall glowed in the horizon like a thundercloud. The train had speeded up. The dark forest outside was a blur, and the whispering of the rails had become a quiet staccato song. Kasonin swallowed, 
as the train covered the remaining distance in a matter of minutes. The firewall grew into a misty dome, glowing with yellowish light from within. The city was an indistinct silhouette beneath it. The buildings seemed to be in motion, like a giant's shadow puppets. Then it was a flaming curtain directly in front of the train, an impenetrable wall made from twilight and amber crossing the tracks. Kasonin gripped the delicate frame of his seat, knuckles white. Slow down, he shouted, but the train did not hear. It crashed directly into the firewall with a bone-jarring impact. There was a burst of light, and then Kasonin was lifted from his seat. It was like drowning, except that he was floating in an infinite sea of amber light rather than water. Apart from the light, there was just emptiness. His skin tickled. It took him a moment to realize that he was not breathing. And then a stern voice spoke. This is not a place for men, it said. Closed, forbidden, go back. I have a mission, said Kasonin. His voice had no echo in the light. From your makers, they command you to let me in. He closed his eyes, and Maria's third gift floated in front of him, not words, but a number. He had always been poor at memorizing things, but Maria's touch had been a pen with acid ink, burning it in his mind. He read off the endless digits one by one. You may enter, said the firewall, but only that which is human will leave. The train and the speed came back, sharp and real, like a paper cut. The twilight glow of the firewall was still there, but instead of the forest, dark buildings loomed around the railway, blank windows staring at him. Kasonin's hands tickled. They were clean, as were his clothes. Every speck of dirt was gone. His felt was tender and red, like he had just been to the sauna. The train slowed down at last, coming to a stop in the dark mouth of the station, and Kasonin was in the city. The city was a forest of metal and concrete and metal that breathed and hummed. The air smelled of ozone. The facades of the buildings around the railway station square looked almost like he remembered them, only subtly wrong. From the corner of his eye, he could glimpse them moving, shifting in their sleep like stone-skinned animals. There were no signs of life, apart from a cluster of pigeons hopping back and forth on the stairs, looking at him. They had sapphire eyes. A bus stopped, full of faceless people who looked like crash-test dummies, sitting unnaturally still. Kasonin decided not to get in, 
and started to head across the square towards the main shopping street. He had to start the search for the spark somewhere. It will glow, Maria had said. You can't miss it. There was what looked like a car wreck in the parking lot. Lying on its side, Hood crumpled like a discarded beer can, covered in white pigeon droppings. But when Kasonin walked past it, its engine roared and the hood popped open. A hissing bundle of tentacles snapped out, reaching for him. He managed to gain some speed before the car beast rolled onto its four wheels. There were narrow streets on the other side of the square, too narrow for it to follow. He ran, cold weight in his stomach, legs pumping. The crossbow beat painfully at his back in its strap, and he struggled to get it over his head. The beast passed him arrogantly and turned around. Then it came straight at him. The tentacles spread out from its glowing engine mouth into a fan of serpents. Kasonin fumbled with a bolt, then loosed it at the thing. The crossbow kicked, but the arrow glanced off its windshield. It seemed to confuse it enough for Kasonin to jump aside. He dove, hit the pavement with a painful thump, and rolled. Somebody help! Perkala! He swore with impotent rage, and got up, panting, just as the beast backed off slowly, engine growling. He smelled burning rubber mixed with ozone. Maybe I can rustle it, he thought, like a madman, spreading his arms, refusing to run again, one last poem in it. Something landed in front of the beast, wings fluttering, a pigeon. Both Kasonin and the car creature stared at it. It made a cooing sound, then it exploded. The blast tore at his eardrums, and the white fireball turned the world black for a second. Kasonin found himself on the ground again, ears ringing, lying painfully on top of his backpack. The car beast was a burning wreck ten meters away, twisted beyond all recognition. There was another pigeon next to him, picking at what looked like bits of metal. It lifted its head and looked at him, flames reflecting from the tiny sapphire eyes. Then it took flight, leaving a tiny white dropping behind. The main shopping street was empty. Kasonin moved carefully, in case there were more of the car creatures around, staying close to narrow alleys and doorways. The firewall light was dimmer between the buildings, and strange lights danced in the windows. Kasonin realized he was starving. He had not eaten since noon, and the journey and the fight had taken their toll. He found an empty cafe in a street corner that seemed safe, set up his small travel cooker on a table, and boiled some water. The supplies he had been able to bring consisted mainly of canned soup and dried elk meat, but 
His growling stomach was not fussy. The smell of food made him careless. This is my place, said a voice. Kasonin leaped up, startled, reaching for the crossbow. There was a stooped, trollish figure at the door, dressed in rags. His face shone with sweat and dirt, framed by matted hair and beard. His porous skin was full of tiny sapphire growths like pockmarks. Kasonin had thought living in the woods had made him immune to human odors, but the stranger carried a bitter stench of sweat and stale booze that made him want to retch. The stranger walked in and sat down at a table opposite Kasonin. But that's all right, he said amicably. Don't get many visitors these days. Have to be neighborly. Satana, is that blaban soup you've got? You're welcome to some, Kasonin said warily. He had met some of the other stayers over the years, but usually avoided them. They all had their own reasons for not going up, and not much in common. Thanks, that's neighborly indeed. I'm Para, by the way. The troll held out his hand. Kasonin shook it gingerly, feeling the strange, jagged things under Para's skin. It was like squeezing a glove filled with powdered glass. Kasonin, so, you live here? Oh, no, not here, not in the center. I come here to steal from the buildings, but they've become really smart and stingy. Can't even find soup anymore. The Stockman department store almost ate me yesterday. It's not easy life here. Para shook his head. But better than outside... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There was a sly look in his eyes. Are you staying 
because you want to, wondered Kasonin, or because the firewall won't let you out anymore. Not afraid of the plague gods, then? he asked aloud. He passed Para one of the heated soup tins. The city stayer slurped it down with one gulp, smell of minestrone mingling with the other odors. Oh, you don't have to be afraid of them any more. They're all dead. Kasonin looked at Para, startled. How do you know? The pigeons told me. The pigeons? Para took something from the pocket of his ragged coat carefully. It was a pigeon. It had a sapphire beak and eyes, and a trace of blue in its feathers. It struggled in Para's grip, wings fluttering. My little buddies, Para said. I think you've already met them. Yes. Kasonin said. Did you send that one that blew up the car thing? You have to help a neighbor out, don't you? Don't mention it. The soup was good. What did you say about the plague gods? Para grinned, a gap-toothed grin. When the gods got locked up here, they started fighting. Not enough power to go around, you see. So, one of them had to be the top dog, like in Highlander. The pigeons show me pictures sometimes. Bloody stuff. Explosions. Nanites eating men. But finally they were all gone. Every last one. My playground now. So, Essa is gone too. Kasonin was surprised how sharp the feeling of loss was, even now. Better like this, he swallowed. Let's get the job done first. No time to mourn. Let's think about it when we get home. Write a poem about it. And tell Maria. All right, Kasonin said. I'm hunting too. Do you think your buddies could find it? Something that glows. If you help me, I'll give you all the soup I've got and elk meat, and I'll bring more later. How does that sound? Pigeons can find anything, said Para, licking his lips. The pigeon man walked through the city labyrinth like his living room, accompanied by a cloud of the chimera birds. Every now and then, one of them would land on his shoulder and touch his ear with its beak, as if to whisper, Better hurry, Para said. At night, it's not too bad, but during the day, the houses get younger and start thinking. Kasonin had lost all sense of direction. The map of the city was different from the last time he had been here in the old human days. His best guess was that they were getting somewhere close to the cathedral in the old town, but he couldn't be sure. Navigating the changed streets felt like walking through the veins of some giant animal, convoluted and labyrinthine. Some buildings were enclosed in what looked like black film rippling like oil. Some had grown together, organic-looking structures of brick and concrete, blocking streets and making the ground uneven. 
We're not far, Para said. They've seen it, glowing like a pumpkin lantern, they say. He giggled. The amber light of the firewall grew brighter as they walked. It was hotter, too, and Kasonin was forced to discard his old Payanma sweater. They passed an office building that had become a sleeping face, a genderless Easter Island countenance. There was more life in this part of the town, too. Sapphire-eyed animals, sleek cats looking at them from windowsills. Kasonin saw a fox crossing the street. It gave them one bright look and vanished down a sewer hole. Then they turned a corner, where faceless men wearing fashion from ten years ago danced together in a shop window and saw the cathedral. It had grown to gargantuan size, dwarfing every other building around it. It was an anthill of dark red brick and hexagonal doorways. It buzzed with life. Cats with sapphire claws clung to its walls like sleek gargoyles. Thick pigeon flocks fluttered around its towers. Packs of azure-tailed rats ran in and out of open, massive doors like armies on a mission. And there were insects everywhere, filling the air with a drill-like buzzing sound, moving in dense black clouds like a giant's black breath. Oh, Yumalauta, Kasonin said. That's where it fell? Actually, no. I was just supposed to bring you here, Para said. What? Sorry, I lied. It was like in Highlander. There is one of them left, and he wants to meet you. Kasonin stared at Para, dumbfounded. The pigeons landed on the other man's shoulders and arms like a gray, fluttering cloak. They seized his rags and hair and skin with sharp claws. Wings started beating furiously. As Kosonin stared, Para rose to the air. No hard feelings. I just had a better deal from him. Thanks for the soup, he shouted. In a moment, Para was a black scrap of cloth in the sky. The earth shook. Kasonin fell to his knees. The window eyes that lined the street lit up, full of bright, malevolent light. He tried to run. He did not make it far before they came. The fingers of the city, the pigeons, the insects, a buzzing swarm that covered him. A dozen chimera rats clung to his skull, and he could feel the humming of their flywheel hearts. Something sharp bit through the bone. The pain grew like a forest of fire, and Kasonin screamed. The city spoke. Its voice was a thunderstorm, words made from shaking of the earth and the sighs of buildings. Slow words squeezed from stone. Dad, the city said. The pain was gone. Kasonin heard the gentle sound of waves 
and felt a warm wind on his face. He opened his eyes. Hi, Dad, Essa said. They sat on the summer house pier, wrapped in towels, skin flushed from the sauna. It was evening, with a hint of chill in the air, Finish summer's gentle reminder that things were not forever. The sun hovered above the blue-tinted treetops. The lake's surface was calm, full of liquid reflections. I thought, Essa said, that you'd like it here. Essa was just like Kasonin remembered him, a pale, skinny kid, ribs showing, long arms folded across his knees, stringy, wet hair hanging on his forehead, but his eyes were the eyes of a city, dark orbs of metal and stone. I do, Kisonin said, but I can't stay. Why not? There is something I need to do. We haven't seen each other in ages. The sauna is warm. I've got some beer cooling in the lake. Why the rush? I should be afraid of you, Kasonin said. You killed people before they put you here. You don't know what it's like, Essa said. The plague does everything you want. It gives you things you don't even know you want. It turns the world soft and sometimes it tears it apart for you. You think a thought, and things break. You can't help it. The boy closed his eyes. You want things too. I know you do. That's why you are here, isn't it? You want your precious words back. Kasonin said nothing. Mom's errand boy, Bitu. So... They fixed your brain, flushed the booze out, so you can write again. Does it feel good? For a moment there, I thought you came here for me. But that's not the way it ever worked, was it? I didn't know. I can see the inside of your head, you know, Essa said. I've got my fingers inside your skull. One thought, and my bugs will eat you. Bring you here for good, quality time forever. What do you say to that? And there it was, the old guilt. We worried about you every second after you were born, Kasonin said. We only wanted the best for you. It had seemed so natural how the boy played with his machine that made other machines, how things started changing shape when you thought at them. How Essa smiled when he showed Kasonin the talking starfish that the machine had made. And then I had one bad day. I remember, Kasonin said. He had been home late, as usual. Essa had been a diamond tree growing in his room. There were starfish everywhere, eating the walls and the floor, making more of themselves. And that was only the beginning. So, go ahead. Bring me here. It's your turn to make me into what you want. Or end it all. I deserve it. Essa laughed softly. 
And why would I do that to an old man? He sighed. You know, I'm old too now. Let me show you. He touched Kasonin's shoulder gently. And Kasonin was the city. His skin was stone and concrete, pores filled with the god plague. The streets and buildings were his face, changing and shifting with every thought and emotion. His nervous system was diamond and optic fiber. His hands were chimera animals. The firewall was all around him, in the sky and in the cold bedrock, insubstantial but adamantine, squeezing from every side, cutting off energy, making sure he could not think fast, but he could still dream, weave words and images into threads, make worlds out of the memories he had, and the memories of the smaller gods he had eaten to become the city. He sang his dreams in radio waves, not caring if the firewall let them through or not, louder and louder. Here, Asa said from far away, have a beer. Kasonin felt a chilly bottle in his hand and drank. The dream beer was strong and real. The malt taste brought him back. He took a deep breath, letting the fake summer evening wash away the city. Is that why you brought me here, to show me that? he asked. Well, no, Essa said, laughing. His stone eyes looked young suddenly. I just wanted you to meet my girlfriend. The quantum girl had golden hair and eyes of light. She wore many faces at once, like a Hindu goddess. She walked to the pier with dainty steps. Essa's summerland showed its cracks around her. There were fracture lines in her skin, with otherworldly colors peeking out. This is Sada, Essa said. She looked at Kasonin and spoke, a bubble of words, a superposition, all possible greetings at once. Nice to meet you, Kasonin said. They did something right when they made her up there, said Essa. She lives in many worlds at once, thinks in cubits, and this is the world where she wants to be, with me. He touched her shoulder gently. She heard my songs and ran away. Maria said she fell, Kasonin said, that something was broken. She said that they wanted her to stay. They don't like it when things don't go according to plan. Sade made a sound like the chime of a glass bell. The firewall keeps squeezing us, Essa said. That's how it was made. Makes things go slower and slower here until we die. Sade doesn't fit in here. This place is too small. So you will take her back home before it's too late. He smiled. I'd rather you do it than anyone else. That's not fair, Kasonin said. He squinted at Sade. She was too bright to look at. But what can I do? I'm just a slab of meat, meat and words. The thought was like a pine cone, rough in his grip, but with a seed 
of something in it. I think there's a poem in you two, he said. Kasonin sat on the train again, watching the city stream past. It was early morning. The sunrise gave the city new hues, purple shadows and gold ember colors. Fatigue pulsed in his temples. His body ached. The words of a poem weighed down on his mind. Above the dome of the firewall, he could see a giant diamond starfish, a drone of the sky people watching like an outstretched hand. They came to see what happened, he thought. They'll find out. This time, he embraced the firewall like a friend, and its tingling brightness washed over him, and deep within, the stern-voiced watchman came again. It said nothing this time, but he could feel its presence, scrutinizing, seeking things that did not belong in the outside world. Kasonin gave it everything. The first moment he knew he had put something real on paper, the disappointment when he realized that a poet was not much in a small country, piles of cheaply printed copies of his first collection gathering dust in little bookshops, the jealousy he had felt when Maria had given birth to Essa. What a pale shadow of that giving birth to words was. The tracks of the elk in the snow and the look in its eyes when it died. He felt the watchman step aside, satisfied. Then he was through. The train emerged into the real, undiluted dawn. He looked back at the city and saw fire raining from the starfish, pillars of light cut through the city in geometric patterns, too bright to look at, leaving only white hot plasma in their wake. Kasonin closed his eyes and held on to the poem as the city burned. Kasonin planted the nano seed in the woods. He dug a deep hole in the half-frozen peat with his bare hands under an old stump. He sat down, took off his cap, dug out his notebook, and started reading. The pencil-scrawled words glowed bright in his mind, and after a while he didn't need to look at them anymore. The poem rose from the words like a titanic creature from an ocean, first showing just a small extremity, but then soaring upwards in a spray of glossolalia, mountain-like. It was a stream of hissing words and phonemes, an endless spell that tore at his throat. And with it came the quantum information from the microtubules of his neurons, where the bright-eyed girl now lived, and jagged impulses from synapses where his son was hiding. The poem swelled into a roar. He continued until his voice was a hiss. Only the nano-seed could hear, but that was enough. Something stirred under the peat. When the poem finally ended, it was evening. Kasonin opened his eyes. The first thing he saw were the sapphire antlers sparkling in the last rays of the sun. Two young elk looked at him. One was smaller, more delicate, and its large brown eyes held a hint of sunlight. 
The other was young and skinny, but wore its budding antlers with pride. It held Kasonin's gaze, and in its eyes he saw shadows of the city, or reflections in a summer lake, perhaps. They turned around and ran into the woods, silent, fleet-footed, and free. Kasonin was opening the cellar door when the rain came back. It was barely a shower this time. The droplets formed Maria's face in the air. For a moment he thought he saw her wink. Then the rain became a mist and was gone. He propped the door open. The squirrels stared at him from the trees curiously. All yours, gentlemen, Kasonin said. Should be enough for next winter. I don't need it any more. Otso and Kasonin left at noon, heading north. Kasonin's skis slid along easily in the thinning snow. The bear pulled a sledge, loaded with equipment. When they were well away from the cabin, it stopped to sniff at a fresh trail. Elk. It growled. Otso is hungry. Kasonin shoot an elk. Need meat for the journey. Kasonin did not bring enough booze. Kasonin shook his head. I think I'm going to learn to fish, he said. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Hanus and Annie. Thank you so much. What do you think of that? Fantastic. So we get on to science news. And like I say, at this second, I've got Jim's recording. So, Jim, let's see if you're there. Greetings and felicitations, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this July 2011 science news update. I'm your host for this evening of purely wondrous adulteration and exhortatious hedonism. Jim Campanella. Uh, to mix a metaphor immediately, let's get this puppy rolling. My allusion a second ago to adulteration was more than just a bit of me being silly. Uh, the first three stories of the night are all related to each other because they involve cheating, lying, and yes, even being adulterous. Apparently in the last month there has been a perfect storm of research looking at infidelity and honesty, or dishonesty as the case may be. Have you ever met a guy and immediately distrusted him because of his looks? I'm not talking about race here or a lack of sartorial resources, so to speak, or even the fact that he may be, well, less than scrupulous with his hygiene. I'm talking just looking at a man's face and feeling more than a bit uneasy about trusting him. Well, according to Dr. Michael Hasselhoon at the University of Wisconsin, some men simply have untrustworthy faces. Uh, he published this result in this month's issue of the Proceedings of the Royal Society. According to his statistical analysis, men with wide faces more often deceived partners in negotiations, lacked marital fidelity, and cheated in money-making games more than thin-faced men did. Men with wide faces had a heightened feeling of personal power, and this feeling apparently encouraged their unethical deeds. The authors proposed that Certain physical traits have evolved as signals of male dominance and aggression, including wide faces. So it kind of makes sense that certain physical features can predict things like unprincipled behavior. The authors add that broad-faced women show no penchant for lying and cheating, just men. And I kind of go along with this result. I mean, for a long time I've had a theory which I call the somatophysiognomy theory of behavior, 
which, by the way, has absolutely no support whatsoever, except for my own kind of demented observations. Uh, in my personal experience, I've found that people with similar physical and facial features often seem to have similar personalities. In short, uh, people who look alike will often act alike, even if genetically unrelated. I know from a scientific standpoint that makes no sense whatsoever without any evidence to back it up, but I've seen it again and again. I'm just curious whether listeners think that is completely off the wall or whether they've experienced anything similar in their lives. Anyway, the second cheating story of the night is not about humans, but about birds. Dr. Wolfgang Forstmeier of the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology has been studying captive zebra finches and their behavior for years, and he just published some of his results in the Proceedings of the National Academy on female infidelity among the supposedly monogamous finches. Apparently for years it's bothered scientists that you often see female infidelity in species that supposedly mate for life. Males cheat because it's to their advantage to spread their genes around as much as possible in a population. That means that male philandering leads to more offspring the following spring. But females have no reason to cheat. No matter how many males they dally with, they'll have the same number of offspring. In fact, it may be a bad thing for females to cheat because it can lead to such things as extra childcare duties because the ill-treated, cuckolded male bird is slacking off on his parenting. One theory has suggested that females cheat not because they have any advantage in cheating, but because, just like males, they inherit the same cheating genes. So female cheating may just be a side effect of the enormous benefit males derive from spreading their seed as widely as possible. And this theory goes back about 24 years, and it's been tested very little since it was proposed that long ago. Because Forstmeyer has a huge number of animals to examine in close detail in a controlled space, he was finally able to examine the hypothesis that has been floating around for a couple of decades. Forstmeyer and his colleagues filmed and monitored paternity for five generations of birds, a total of 800 males and 754 females. Uh, the researchers switched many of the chicks from their original nests and determined that nature, not nurture, was influencing at least the finch sexual behavior. And the scientists painstakingly documented who mated with or rebuffed whom. It's reported that Forstmeyer himself watched about a thousand finch courtships on video. About this, he said, quote, it never really got boring. His co-author, Catherine Martin, watched about 3,000 to 4,000 courtships and had a similar response. I'm just curious if these are available on YouTube. At any rate, the conclusion is strong support for genetics having control of female infidelity, again, at least in finches. It's still possible that there are other explanations. For example, it may be that Female cheating is beneficial to both sexes. I mean, think about it for a second. If there is a cheating gene, then why not a fidelity gene? If females have a fidelity gene, then it could be selected in males. And if it was selected in males, it would actually hurt the species if males stopped their extracurricular activities by reigning in their philandering. Having the infidelity be on both sides, male and female, and the fidelity as well, balances out the genetic outcomes. Our third cheating story answers the following question. Okay, fine, so finches cheat on each other, and that's genetic. Is it genetic in humans as well? And what advantage would the human female get from cheating on her husband? 
Behavioral scientist Dr. Brooke Skelza of UCLA tried to answer this question in this month's issue of the Journal of Biology Letters, and the paper is entitled Female Choice and Extra Pair Paternity in a Traditional Human Population. Basically, the paper asked the question, what advantage does a woman have to cheat on her husband? Certainly, as in the finches, it does not increase the number of children. Skelsa found that among African herders known as the Himba, adulterous encounters reported by married women account for 17% of the women's offspring. Now, the one advantage appears to be that the Himba women who stray have more children who survive into adulthood than those who stay faithful. Now, what is even more interesting is that almost all these women are in arranged marriages. Women in these arranged loveless marriages sought affairs to escape parental authority and control reproductive decisions, Skelsa suggests. Apparently also, Himba men leave home for long periods. Uh, They know about this unfaithfulness and they tolerate their adulterous wives because additional children provide valuable labor to the tribe. This is Skelsa's view, at least. Uh, The paper also notes that there are no cases of children being produced through extramarital affairs in what Skelsa calls, quote, love match marriages, unquote. That is, pairs of people who were not in arranged marriages but actually loved each other to start with. The rate of so-called extra-pair paternity is higher in the Himba than has been recorded in any small-scale society on the face of the earth at the moment. Okay, this entire line of stories is getting depressing. Let's look at something completely different. For the last 40 years or so, geneticists have thought that they had it pretty much figured out how genes work and proteins are coded from those genes. I mean, there have been some minor bumps along the way. For example, we no longer say that the one gene produces one enzyme hypothesis works. Uh, I mean, Dr. George Beadle actually got a Nobel Prize for that, and we, we no longer say that that's true anymore. By the way, I'm always amused at the number of Nobel Prize winners over the years whose contributions have been shown to be just part of the story or just plain wrong-headed. At any rate, we believed Beetle's hypothesis for several decades and then found out differently when it turned out that the messenger RNA that got coded from a gene could be chopped up in a variety of ways to give you different proteins. So that meant one gene could produce several different enzymes. That was a bit of a monkey wrench, but it was completely understandable and reproducible. In fact, it's been an important discovery because it explains how the genome of about 25,000 human genes can produce so many more proteins. Now we have a whole new monkey wrench being thrown at us, and this is a serious one because scientists are terrified of all the potential complications. In short, what we thought we understood, we may not understand at all, and the process of protein translation may be a bigger black box than we ever suspected. So what am I referring to? University of Rochester scientists, Drs. Yitao Yu and John Karajolich, have published a paper in the prestigious journal Nature this month explaining why what we think we know about genetics may be wrong. The paper is entitled Converting Nonsense Codons into Sense Codons by Targeted Pseudouridylation. For those of you who do not remember, the central dogma of genetics goes something like this. DNA stores all the information of the cell. Messenger RNA is transcribed and coded from the genes in the DNA. That messenger RNA is then translated at a structure called a ribosome into protein sequences. 
And finally, it's the protein in many forms that actually controls and regulates what goes on in the cell. That's the pathway of the information from the DNA to the RNA to the protein. When proteins are being translated from messenger RNA, that process of translation is stopped by one of three triplet codes that have the base uridine in them. These are called stop codons. What you and Kara Jolich found is that if you replace the uridine in the stop codon with a rare RNA base called pseudouridine, then you do not get a stop. In other words, the protein making machinery runs right through the stop sign and into the sequence territory, which it's not supposed to use to make further protein. You might just think of this as kind of silly and not very important, but it's not just a kind of run-of-the-mill molecular traffic violation, if you want to call it that. It results in an entirely different protein than the one encoded by DNA. And this is a clear violation of the central dogma that I just described. The enzymes that copy DNA to RNA and vice versa can't tell the difference between the uridine and the pseudouridine, but that subtle chemical tweak, as one author suggests, is akin to writing a letter in a hard-to-read font, like a Byzantine font, and it gives an entirely different meaning for the ribosome as it translates. There are two reasons that this traffic snafu might lead to a major finding. First, there are 61 codon triplets that we know of that code regularly in all DNA on the face of the earth, whether you're an E. coli or a palm tree or a Peruvian anteater. 61 codons, that's it. As far as we know, it doesn't change in any organism anywhere. This is how we're all related. It is a universal code. Now, when pseudouridine is added into the mix instead of uridine, and by the way, it is a naturally occurring base in mRNA. This is not something that, that uh, you don't see. You actually create new codon triplets. This is something that has never been anticipated and never predicted. Uh, remarkably, pseudouridylated nonsense codons code for specific amino acids and not the ones the scientists would have predicted. Specifically, pseudo-AA and pseudo-AG code for serine and threonine, whereas the triplet pseudo-GA codes for tyrosine and phenylalanine. Those are four major amino acids. Now, if this is a natural process seen in nature, it suggests a whole new mode of decoding triplets. That is, new codons that we did not know even existed. Of course, the real question is whether pseudouridine plays a part in changing the genetic code in nature, and, and that really remains to be seen. If it turns out that this is a natural phenomenon and not just a weird lab thing, it may mean that we do not understand ribosomes or the process of translation as well as we did. The other reason that this is so important is that it provides potential treatment for genetic diseases that are presently untreatable, which have mutant stop codons in the middle of genes. You and Karajolich's technique might be used to fix genetic errors. Introducing stop sign busting pseudouridine into an RNA may one day help people with rare genetic diseases in which one of their genes contains an early stop codon. This may all sound a bit abstruse to the layman, but in terms of molecular biology and genetics, it may represent a real step forward, a quantum leap. Okay, let's go on to something entirely different. 
I'm sure you've all read speculative fiction or seen bad SF movies where an alien has an amazing ability to interfere with some sort of detection device and somehow throw off its searchers from the scent of it. Well, that is in some part the realm of fiction, but there's at least one animal on the face of the earth which has the ability to block sonar. No, not sonar from ships or submarines, but sonar from bats of all things. The tiger moth is the only animal in nature known to defend itself by jamming the sonar of its predators, that is, bats. Dr. Alan Corcoran and his colleagues from Wake Forest University study the abilities of these moths in this month's Journal of Experimental Biology. Corcoran analyzed the three-dimensional flight paths and echolocation behavior of big brown bats attacking tiger moths in a flight room over seven consecutive nights to determine the acoustic mechanism of the sonar jamming defense. In the past, the literature has proposed three different mechanisms for how this jamming might work. First, something they call the phantom echo hypothesis. And this states that bats misinterpret moth clicks as echoes. Second, the ranging interference hypothesis, which states that moth clicks degrade the bat's precision in determining target distance. And three, the masking hypothesis, which states that moth clicks actually mask the moth echoes entirely and make them temporarily invisible, a little like a stealth airplane. The authors took bats and moths and examined them again over a series of nights to determine which theory may be the correct one. On nights one and two of the experiment, the bats appeared startled by the clicks. However, on nights three through seven, the bats frequently missed their prey by a distance of 15 to 20 centimeters. This supports the ranging interference hypothesis. Three-dimensional simulations show that the bats did not avoid phantom targets, and the bat's ability to track clicking prey contradicted the predictions of the masking hypothesis. So the moths were not just invisible to the bats. They could be detected. The scientists observed also that the moth clicks forced the bats to reverse their typical pattern of echolocation emissions during attack, even while bats continued the pursuit of the moths. That change in their response further hindered the bats' ability to track their prey. So it appears that the ranging interference hypothesis is the correct one and that the moths are simply throwing off the senses of the bats so that they're no longer accurate. This may have Department of Defense uses in the future to protect ships and airplanes. Okay, onward and upward. With the ending of Harry Potter this month and the finale movie, I feel like I should make some passing reference to the boy wizard. Uh, the next story is only vaguely related to Harry, but I can stretch things for once. I'm sure that you remember that through much of the series, Harry used the Cloak of Invisibility, one of those deathly hallows, to good effect to help hide himself and his friends and protect themselves. Well, imagine that Harry had a cloak that didn't just hide him in space, as the Invisibility Cloak did, but in time. Voldemort would have been even more scared of Harry than he was. Imagine being able to temporarily hide an event in time. Dr. Marty Fridman and his co-authors at Cornell University report at the Cornell Online Science Archive the first experimental demonstration of what you might call temporal cloaking. The team was able to temporarily tear a hole in a beam of light, and events that occurred during that brief period of time remained unseen 
as did the hole itself. In the past, invisibility cloaks hid objects from view by bending light around them, just like water flows around a rock in a river, light curves around a cloak and then rejoins perfectly on the other side, and it leaves no trace of that detour. A time cloak conceals an event by changing light speed, not its direction. With the speed of light being a maximum of about 300 million meters per second, this trick works only when light travels slower than it would travel through a vacuum. For example, when it moves through a fiber optic cable. The Cornell team, by the way, has not actually published their results yet. They've only reported them at Cornell's online depot of information for its faculty, which has a minimum of information. However, there is enough info there to know that they manipulated light in a fiber optic cable using something called a time lens. A time lens is a silicon device originally developed to speed up data transfer. Some of the light passing through this lens speeds up and some of it slows down. The waves divide like the Red Sea being parted, creating a gap of darkness. And a second lens farther along the cable then stitches the light back together so that it arrives at its destination intact, with no record of the hole or anything that happened during this brief window of opportunity. Mind you that no one is going to be using this very soon to cloak a tank or anything. The hole they created lasted for about 15 trillionths of a second long enough to conceal pulses of light created inside the cloak. They suggested that the longer the optic cable used, the longer the time gap would become in theory, at least. They also stated that the longest gap they could theoretically manage was a bit more than a microsecond. Longer than that, and imperfections in the technique would grow large enough to reveal the presence of the gap, and invisibility would become, well, pointless. Previously, scientists thought that you could only make a time cloak with exotic metamaterials and an invisibility cloak thrown into the mix. The imperfect Cornell cloak, which is not made of metamaterials, may be useful for signal processing. It could, in theory, interrupt one data stream and allow another to be processed and then reconstitute the original stream for a detector that would be unaware of the interruption. Larger time gaps on everyday scales, though, are pretty unlikely. Even with a theoretically perfect metamaterial cloak, the authors estimate that a mere eight-minute time gap would require a device the size of the solar system. All right, let's finish out the night with two final stories that are updates on previous stories that we've discussed in the past. First, you may remember from at least a year ago, if not longer, we had a story discussing the viral plague that seems to be hitting Tasmanian devils down under. It causes a fatal infectious cancer and is making major inroads in wiping out the species. Doctors Stephen Schuster and Webb Miller of Penn State University have published in the latest issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy that they now have two new complete sets of Tasmanian devil genetic blueprints. These genomes hold some good news and some bad news for the devils. The bad news is that the marsupial's genetic diversity is among the lowest known for any species. You may remember that genetic diversity is the differences in the genome over an entire species. And low genetic diversity is a bad thing for beating a plague like the Tasmanian devils are facing. However, the good news is that the devil's low diversity has a long history and may not be a reason for as much concern as was once thought. 
Schuster says, quote, this low genetic diversity does not mean the species is doomed. If you maintain the entire diversity, this can be a viable species, unquote. The two Tasmanian devils that were sequenced were named Cedric and Spirit. Cedric was one of the few devils whose immune system could fight off the infectious cancer, which started in a single long-dead devil and has since swept over more than half the island. As part of the efforts to study the disease, Cedric survived two attempts to infect him with the disease purposely, but he finally succumbed to the third strain. Spirit was already infected with five tumors and dying when she was captured. Researchers hoped that cataloging and comparing the two animals' genomes would show why Cedric was partially immune to the fatal cancer, while Spirit and so many others are not. The initial analysis of the two genomes has not yet provided a clear answer, but researchers believe that further work will reveal secrets to defeating the deadly disease that may be buried in the animal's blueprints. The authors suspect that most devils have variants in certain genes that make them more susceptible to the tumor disease. How bad is the genetic diversity of the devils? This new work shows that devil diversity is about 20% of that of humans. An analysis of DNA from museum specimens going back to 1874, at least 100 years before the infectious cancer first appeared, finds that Tasmanian devils have had that level of genetic diversity for a long time. The authors say that the devils have survived with low diversity for a long time and have done pretty well, but the entire point of the problems with low diversity, low genetic diversity, are this. Yes, you can do great for years and years at a time with low genetic diversity, and heck, you can even have an entire population of clones for centuries with no genetic diversity if you want to push the concept, but eventually some environmental catastrophe is going to occur that will wipe out a population with little or no variation in it. This is exactly what's going on with the devils. They were doing great for centuries until the plague hit them, which few were immune to because their genetics are so homogeneous. Worse yet, it seems likely that because the devils are so genetically similar to one another, their immune systems may have trouble recognizing tumor cells passed on by another devil as not their own. There's a lesson to be learned here. The authors are hoping that human intervention and directed matings may help to increase genetic diversity and help the devils to survive in the long run. The final story of the night concerns, for the four millionth time, an update on bisphenol A, also known as BPA, and more of its horrific effects on humans. You may remember that BPA is a chemical toxin found in many clear plastics and store receipts, and it mimics human steroid hormones. Two new studies have just been published about two different species, which suggest further dire effects on males caused by BPA. The first study is by Dr. Cheryl Rosenfeld of the University of Missouri-Columbia and her colleagues, which was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy. It appears that early exposure of pregnant deer mice to BPA causes a rewiring of the brains of offspring even if no further BPA is found in the blood of the offspring. Tests in offspring of the deer mice, of treated animals, evaluated spatial navigational abilities, something at which male deer mice normally excel at. 
Spatial learning abilities and exploratory behaviors were severely compromised in males that encountered early BPA doses relative to unexposed males. For example, a male released into a pen with many portals will seek the exit to its own cage. Unexposed males quickly learned how to find their exit and make a beeline to it. The BPA-exposed males, by contrast, tended to take random paths in trial after trial or serially visit all the exits and often didn't commit to any of them. In the study, BPA did not affect female behavior. However, all females found BPA-exposed males substantially less attractive. Rosenfeld is currently investigating what cues, such as sensor behaviors, the BPA-exposed males might be giving off. The second BPA story comes out of China from researchers at Zhejiang Normal University in Jinhua and was just published in the journal Neuropharmacology. These authors found pretty much the same results as the American team, except that they used standard lab mice. In their paper, they detail impaired spatial navigational abilities and exploratory behaviors in male lab mice that had been exposed to low levels of BPA beginning in adolescence, not given to their mothers in this case. These later exposures also affected females, the paper said. For example, boldened BPA-exposed females were willing to explore open areas as normal males typically would. I mean, I've been talking about BPA for a couple of years now, and with every new report I get more worried. These novel findings point to the fact that an early environmental exposure can manifest itself later in life, which is a very bad thing. I don't know why legislators in the U.S. do not simply put a ban on the substance as they have in Canada. I mean, we're really talking about the survival of our species here, as well as every other mammal on the face of the earth exposed to these toxins. It's a serious issue. That's enough ranting for the moment. I'll step down off my soapbox now. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care. And need I say it, stay away from dishonest, broad-faced males affected by BPA. And I hope it inspires some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. I see. I knew we. I knew we'd all work out in the end, Jim. Thank you so much. So that is show one hundred and ninety nine. Before we actually just do go off on our, you know, travelogue vacation there, little holiday. Just want to say a big thank you to everyone that kind of turned up for the time travel lectures. Fantastic. Thank you so much. You know, I hope you enjoyed it. I did. You know what I mean? When you kind of start and talking about the grandfather paradox and everything like that, it's just fantastic. Great, honest, great kind of lecture speakers there. Amy H. Sturgis, who just kind of, who can just do that thing? You know what I mean? I am te- live talking. <laughs> Amy, that was a, thank you so much. Ted Chang and Connie Willis. I'm going to do some more of them, you know what I mean? Because I really enjoyed it, like say. And there's one thing that I kind of, mind you, one thing that I kind of stand, but I think would actually make a good kind of lecture is on zombies, you know? So, and there's a few other ideas, you know, I'm going to certainly do one on on steampunk and on the other idea I had was for like cyberpunk as well. So you never know. We'll, we'll see how those come. But a big thank you to everyone that turned up for that as well. Thank you so much. So, that is it. We are off now. So, we will close down the boosters. 
and float off into the sunset for a few weeks. Have a good time if you're going on holiday. Again, thank you so much for kind of sticking with Starships over and listener, listening to her for a, a while. Do you know what I mean? That is really appreciated. Let's just fingers crossed for the Hugh Reward. You never know. Until we get back, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa of Activation Procedure Initiated. Set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.